Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, where you truly do hear from legends. Man, I am getting that down, Gabriel. It's it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like Wolfman Jack back in the day. You know, he came on and and everything was just perfect. Uh -huh. Not that I'm comparing myself to Wolfman Jack, Whoa. but um so yeah, we're gonna do the top 40 here over the next <laughs> over the next hour. But okay, yeah, um, I'm into it. Yeah. So, okay. Give people a chance to log on here. This is, I'm going to take this opportunity, of course, to thank Trent Austin and Austin Custom Brass for sponsoring this month's interviews. And of course, we started out April with Eric Miyashiro, uh, then on to, oh my gosh, uh, Sergei Nekaryakov, um, then Mark Gould. Yeah. And now Gabriel, you want to go by Gabe or Gabriel tonight? Uh, Gabriel would be great. But if you Gabriel. call me Gabe, I won't mind. Um, uh, well, Gabriel, um, sure. what an eclectic lineup this was this month, right? I I'm mean, in, I'm I'm in extremely good company. I just feel like I don't belong here, but that's uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm just so honored to to share this month with those those three. Oh my gosh! Well, I I put you in their company, right? It's I think you you definitely belong there. But too, uh, too okay, kind. so back to back to Trent Austin though. Uh, do you know Trent? Yeah. Well, uh, I don't. I think we've probably met sort of casually at the conferences and things, uh, but we, I actually got to know him a little more through his um, uh, uh, live noodles on Facebook and just like asking him questions and just, he's so nice to talk to. I think we've even maybe talked on the phone once or twice about porn horns and things, but, um, but yeah, I just, uh, you know, that was actually way before any of us did any of this stuff. You know, Trent was getting on there at least once a week and just playing what anybody wanted him to play and answering questions. And it actually, it's a perfect uh, segue into talking about stuff because it was a, I think about him all the time with those, you know, and I, I mean, I used to sort of rib him sometimes. He'd be like, what do you want me to play? It's giant steps, you know? Um, and he would do it though. He would just say, oh yeah. And, and I, I had a legitimate, like, I'm like, well, I'm really working on giant steps and I really do want to hear you do it. I know it's sort of a jerk move, but I also know you can, show me some stuff, you know? So I, he's been a big inspiration to me during all these crazy times, uh, just getting on, doing live streams, doing uh, digital content for Trumpet that's educational, but fun and um, and honest, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, it, that's the way I really know him the most, it, it, at least in my professional life is, uh, is through that. Well, and what a great, see, you could have, that was a better advertisement for Austin Custom Brass than anything I could have said, because that's exactly it. You know, it's that, it's that personal experience that Trent provides and, and, you know, I think that permeates, permeates his shop. Yeah, right? so absolutely. This is, I'm still plugging uh, Austin Custom Brass at yeah. this moment, but uh, austincustombrass.biz, B-I-Z, if you guys want to go there and check that out. But uh, yeah, Trent, I think, is everybody's instant friend because he is such a nerd when it comes to trumpet and he wants to share everything, right? Like, just yeah. like you're saying. So I'm curious, after you asked about Giant Steps, did you ask about the bridge to Girl from Eponema? No, I didn't, but that'd be a good another, that's another <laughs> good question. I, uh, right? Yeah, I, I mean, well, he, that's the thing. He, you know, he really comes from a genuine place of just not, uh, curiosity is the wrong word. It's, he is curious, but he's been curious so long that when people ask about stuff, he's like, Oh yeah, let me show you that. You know, he's the answer to someone else's curiosity now. And I just think that's really brilliant that, that he, you know, he doesn't have to do any of that stuff. None of us, none of us have to do a lot of the, you know, the stuff we do, but I mean, but he really like, he has a shop. He, he has a whole, a whole career that doesn't need him to go online and play some stuff and answer questions. 
and he does it anyway. Um, and he could do a lot of other things like sponsor podcasts. And, you know, by the way, you can send the other checks since he's, he said, Larry, just, the, if my ad was really that good, you know, right. the money. No, I'm, I, but you know, he, he could have done a lot of other things, but he, I think, you know, and I'm sure it's a little bit uh, to promote the shop, but you can do a lot of things that aren't also good, right? Like you can just promote and just be, uh, you can pay for ads and you can do a lot of things, but he, that's a, that's not only brilliant because it uh, is, is, is smart marketing, but it also, it genuinely helps people. And I think that there's a lot of us in the music industry who uh, that's a huge part of our value system to, to help people without provocation and without any kind of reciprocation. And, um, and so it emulates that, but again, not just emulates, it is that. And, and so and that's, that's one of the questions that I ask a lot is like, well, why not do something good if you're going to do something? I mean, like not just the right way, but like, the, you know, in a helpful way, it doesn't have well, to just be one thing. And he really <laughs> enjoys it. Yeah. Right? It, it never seems like a drag, like, well, you know, here I am going to do this again, <laughs> you know, and I, I just, I think you can see the joy in his face when he's playing and, and talking about, you know, this new uh, vintage trumpet that he just got into his shop, right? I mean, it, well, so there's a great uh, conversation starter for you too, because you're kind of into uh, into uh, historical instruments. Is that is that the best way to phrase that? Uh, maybe. I, I I'm into... Um, oddities, I guess, uh, and and his historically relevant things. My dad, uh, as you know, uh, has a huge cornet collection that we we sort of keep together. We both sort of feed into it. Him much more so than uh, than I do because he has a lot more money than I do, and he can he knows all the the, the deals. You know, he got, he knows all the people, but uh, but he has an, a humongous collection that. Um, you know, it's hundred, it's, it's over a hundred cornets that are of really good quality, oh both, both playing quality and historical significance. And so I'm, I'm, I'm part of that collection in terms of one of the collectors for it and one of the curators of it and, uh, caretakers eventually. And, uh, and parts of it are here in the other room. I have, uh, well, maybe half a dozen different kinds of not particularly great, but fine, uh, examples of, uh, of period cornets. Um, well, actually, I have a Boston three-star that's extremely good, and I have two New York Wonders in there, and I have a Levy model Courtois that's a very good playing instrument too. Uh, one of the uh, one of the New York Wonders needs a valve job very bad. I mean, so I, he has three New York, New York Wonders that all play great, so I don't need two, but I need one to play, and you know, so it's that that kind of thing. And uh, I my the one that I keep going back to is this one behind me. This uh, this is a a French Besson that's in C, B, B flat, and A, and high pitch C, so it's kind of like in D flat C, B, B flat, and A. Uh, but it's it's really high pitch and low pitch C and regular pitch C. You know, I uh, can do that with my embouchure. Yeah, right. right? You just or you just pull out some slide. <laughs> um, just play out of tune. But I but I I uh, I bought this from Dylan. I just saw it on the website, and it was uh, it was under C trumpets, uh, and I I saw it and I went, well, that looks like an original. French Besson trumpet, you know, and you know, this design looks really familiar, but uh, it, historically this was kind of the first time that anybody did it this way. There are a lot of other designs before this that didn't quite work, but this worked so well that basically everybody copied it from then on out. And I mean, if you look at my Yamaha, it's in the case over there, but if you look at my Yamaha B flat, it, it has bracing even 
it not too here, but it has bracing even in some of the same spots and everything. I mean, it's really remarkable uh, how good this horn was for when it was built and how much we relied on this design. And so I, I immediately, first of all, I had to have it for that reason. But then when it came, something else happened, which was that I it taught me how to play trumpet. Um, I thought I was doing okay. And then I played this trumpet and I sucked so bad on it. And I just thought, well, hmm, that's, I can tell it's not the, something about the way that I, you know, the feedback I was getting, I was like, well, it's not the horn. It's, I'm not doing this right. You know, so I had to yeah. figure out how to play the trumpet again. And boy, am I, I'm a thousand percent more efficient if I play the modern horns the way that I have to play this horn. And that, that is down to sort of inefficiencies in the designs, but also just not making room for error. Uh, you had to be really good back then to play the trumpet at a professional level. And I'm not saying you don't have to be really good now, of course, but the instruments wouldn't give you any room, right? So there was just from the get-go, you had to really hone your craft and really get your instrument. And they all played differently back then too. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so things like this are really interesting to me. Because Can you get specific on that horn? Can you show? Uh, oh sure, I'm, I'm, the, like the different the different keys on there. I'm I'm very curious yeah, on how okay. that works. Well, so uh, well, I'll just play this one. We don't need to hear a real B flat. Um, so okay, so uh, I, I gotta make sure. I, and I'll turn. Oh no, I'm already set up to play trumpet. This is my teaching setup, so I should be good to go. Mm -hmm. um, so okay, so this is in B flat right now. It looks like a B flat trumpet. It's normal. I usually play this also with some um, some vintage mouthpieces. Uh, so like this is a this is a New York uh, if if you're if you're a real trumpet nerd out there then you'll know what this means this is a Vincent Bach Corp period comma New York with a with a, a medium stamped seven so it's not the deepest wow. stamp but it's so it's it's probably uh, I, I'm gonna get this wrong but it's it's certainly not the 20s 30s uh, I think it's probably mid to late 40s if I'm not mistaken I will have to look it up on um, on dating Bach mouthpieces every time. But anyway, so uh, what am I going to play? Uh, some of the valves also don't work out exactly, so you have to pull them just the right amount, you know, and sort of finagle uh, right. it because it can't be in five keys, right? But anyway, uh, let's see. I'll play a... that's in front of me mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so that's a nice you know normal b flat i have to really make sure my tongue position is in the right kind of i can't just blow hard on this horn because it's just stuffy then but if i sculpt the air just the right shape then it it just lights up and then i get all these colors out of it uh so okay but that's uh i can i can pull so i got this guy <laughs> i play giant steps it says right yeah, yeah um <laughs> uh i can do it thanks Klaus. Uh, so, so here's so here you pull you do a quick pull it's not really quick because you have to hold this in but if I greased this with some old beeswax like they would have then uh, it would be sticky and then I could just do a quick pull like that to a and then I have to but it's not quick still because you have to pull these slides and then the third slide was already all the way out so you can sort of pull the the the, the other you know the the spit valve wow. release but I right. I try I don't want to do it too much but um we'll see so now I got to transpose. It's a little low gear, and that's that's down to me. 
But uh, let's see, another part of this is. So a little articulation is harder the longer the horn is for, mm -hmm. for me. Uh, but so there's A, you know, and that's pretty normal. You'd see B flat and A cornets, trumpets, all the way through the first part of the 20th century. So that's not a big deal. But the, uh, but there's, uh, as I like to say, when I do uh, any demonstration, if I can do it this way, but there's more. Uh, of course. So, uh, if don't mind, that's, so if you're, if, if you're uh, uh, the wolf man, then I'm like Billy Zane. Is that the guy? <laughs> but there's more. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but wait, so, there's more. Yeah, but wait, there's more. So, so now this is this is the low pitch uh, C slide, and one of the reasons that this this works this way is because you'll see that the the front of this horn has uh, it, well, I'm getting too close for my focus, but mm -hmm. this is where the receiver of a normal trumpet would be, and then the venturi of the lead pipe would be right in here, right? But this doesn't have that. This has a bit that is a Morse taper that goes into a bit or a, a receiver that's a Morse taper. And this mm -hmm. happens to be almost exactly a half step long. So what that means is I can actually take this out right now and I can play this instrument in C, right? Uh, I got to push this back in. Okay. Now we're So I'm playing the same same notes down a mm -hmm. step. So this is in C right now, and it actually plays very well in this key. Um, if I put that back in, now it's going to be a half step lower, which is kind of B, right? B natural. Um, so let's see. And I really, really well, uh, wait a minute. So it was in C. Oh right, right, right. You said right. So I, now I'm going down another half step, but not all the way to B flat. So um, let's see. Now it's in uh, <laughs> it's a it's a half step in between, right? Actually plays extremely well in B. Uh, I I I sometimes play uh, what is it? Uh, Pulcinella Suite. It's in the key of F. It's amazing. Beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's so much easier. Um, but anyway, so that so but wait, there's more. Uh, then it has it has a high pitch C. So this is the C slide, really. Right, that would go. So now it's back in C because that took another half step back off. Right. Right. So. And it plays really well in this C as well. So either configuration of C and B, those are the best keys for this instrument. But if we were to take advantage of the fact that I can take this out for another half step, now this is a Morse taper again. Right. That's the that's the difference with the cornets. They'd have a different taper for those little pipes at the end, those little bits that we put in. That's usually not the same taper as the coronet shank. But in this case, it's still a Morse taper. And so that means I can put any mouthpiece in there that has a normal taper. And now I've got a D flat trumpet, right? Uh, if I push this in, let's see. Now that's going to be... The only problem is it's... It's not really meant to play in this key, so you can hear it's kind of. It's like a very flat D flat, and the the valves aren't long enough, so it doesn't really work in that key. But if right. I if I put the right mouthpiece on it with the right back bore, and I get the valve slides just in the exact right places, then I actually could play like 
An example would be uh, the first trumpet part from concerto, uh, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. That um, that famous, you know, uh, you, you have the uh, yeah. So you start you start that on on G G uh, uh, G sharp, right? So now it's G. Right, that's a high C now, which you could get it all configured with the right mouthpiece, and you could just nail that excerpt down to the wall. And then you'd probably want to switch back after, if you had to play it out of out of that key at all. But it, it's right. what's weird is that the fingerings all feel. If you've practiced these excerpts, you're like, I can't. I I don't think I can do that. But anyway, that so that's that. This is fascinating to me because this was designed and sold and purchased by somebody, and uh, and played obviously very played. It, it the bell has a little bit of a cant to it. It's just sort of pushed in a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. You can see. And there's been some, a little bit of repair work. Uh, I don't think that Dylan had to do any. Um, now that I say that, yeah, yeah, I think I got it from Dylan. Uh, I don't think that Dylan had to do any. I think it was any repair work would, had been done already, but it's very, very little. So this is pretty, except for that slight curve of the bell uh, mm -hmm. and a little bit of some rolling. You can see it was rolled out here. You can't really see on camera, but but there's a little bit of the, the wrinkles that you know mm -hmm. it was probably crushed pretty badly at some point right here. Um, and then there's one little dent here, and everything else is perfect on it. So it, it probably plays the way it did. Uh, this is this is probably a slightly later model. It might I, I keep saying sort of like 1910 or 13 or somewhere around in there. But this model started uh, just before the turn of the century, so probably 1895. So uh, how many do you think were produced when they did that? Oh gosh, that's really hard to say. You know the the um, the the Besson. There's there's Besson nuts that know all the serial numbers and everything, mm. and that's actually where I looked this up and I found a couple of conflicting reports, which is why I say it, it could be it could be like really turn of the century, like 1900, and it, it's probably a little later. But um, Besson's really super hard to track down too because there are there's it's like every 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 manufacturer all their factories burn down once, right, and then they move and but they lose all their records and. Uh, somebody even posted about this, I think, on Facebook recently. We're saying, like, how come it's like all these factories burned down? And the answer is, IRS. We, well, <laughs> no, we, we were we were really bad at preventing fires for a really long time. I I hate to say it that way, but there's a really good book called Lifted that's on the history of elevators. Uh, and this is if you're, if you're going to interview me, you got to know that we're not we're going to talk about some weird stuff. Uh, because I like to cross into that. We just, we just, yeah, we, yep, that was it. Um, but this book talks about the, uh, and now we're all very sensitive to this because of COVID, but, uh, it talks about the air quality at different levels of buildings and, um, and how dangerous fires were for apartment buildings in, uh, we're talking pre elevator is, you know, everything basically 1860 and before and, uh, they would build buildings about four stories or six stories, sometimes high. They could go further than that because you wouldn't live very long if you lived on the seventh floor of a building. Um, just a lot of stuff that, you know, so fires were one of those things that like little things would set off. I mean, think about the Chicago fire. We think it was started by a cow. I mean, that's not really, we don't think that anymore, but that's the legend, right? And since right. this is a legends podcast, we're going to talk about legends. And so the, the legend of, was it Bessie the cow? Uh, mm -hmm. and knocked over a lantern and burned the whole city of Chicago down. But that's how bad we were at fire. So of course they all, they all had machinery and, you know, uh, they were, they were forging metal in some of them, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that could go wrong. And even if it was just a little electrical thing, 
it was really hard to catch that at night when nobody was there. And so, of course, they all burned down. Of course, they all kept paper records. Of course, those all burned up. And so it's no surprise that we don't have the records that we wish we did. It's actually amazing that we have the records we do from, from Bach, that that never happened at the Bach factory, or at least it, it, it would happen after the records were moved. I think there's one Bach fire. I don't know that for sure, but... Anyway. Well, think about it. You know, I mean, redundancy was probably not a huge concern. No. Right? I mean, there, and, and, you know, you didn't really have the means to create copies. And it, so, yeah, and, and not until, right, this happened enough times, <laughs> did somebody probably think, hey, uh, we should duplicate this somewhere somehow. But, you know, I, I think about the way that current manufacturers produce theirs uh, and and how they stamp serial numbers and the sequence and whatnot. And I kind of wonder, uh, I know they keep great records, but I, mm -hmm. uh, what I'm thinking back is to why and how Bach did not necessarily keep sequential serial yeah. numbers, you know, well, and I'm wondering, you know, is that a common practice still? Because, you know, back again, back to kind of the IRS comment yeah, earlier, right. you know, that was a legitimate thing. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it makes some things easier and it makes other things more difficult to keep. I mean, it, it depends on what your value system is, right? It, a lot of, a lot of one-off makers don't, use serial numbers each instrument is unique they use it the, well think about before we had any serial numbers you didn't have serial numbers you had a maker's mark right very very early trumpets we have a um we have a, a my i say we my dad has a um a, an original uh, 1700s baroque trumpet that had been converted to a slide trumpet in so, somewhere in the mid 1800s which means that that's a that's a gigging instrument right this guy played it and then a new technology came, new mouthpiece, right? Whatever it is, a new technology came out and he goes, oh, I got to have that. I want to be able to play like whole steps and half steps that I couldn't play before. So he gets it done. That instrument doesn't have a serial number. It has a maker's mark on the bell, on some of the parts in the valve construction. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what they did before because that's all that really mattered. It didn't matter when it was made. It still doesn't really, it's a, it's a way for collectors and, and um, uh, you know, connoisseurs, I guess, if you want to call it that. People who, you know, there's people who want a, a Mount Vernon Bach. And so there's a way to find out what that is uh, because we have good records. If we didn't, think about, except for the Mount Vernon stamp on the bell, which again is just a maker's mark, we wouldn't have any idea when they moved and what parts they took with them that still said Mount Vernon, but were really an Elkhart instrument. And, you know, and, and before that, New York, we still don't really have a super great idea of exactly when what horns were made in New York uh, and or the New York factory and the Mount Vernon factory in right on the edge. I used to have serial number 11,090, I think it was. And that was like 1953. It was like really close to the edge. It was for sure New York. And uh, the next one that I ever touched that I, that I could get my hands on was a 16,000. That was definitely Mount Vernon. And that was, that's pretty early still, but, uh, somewhere 12 or 13 is the move date, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, and the, again, the Bach loyalist guys, they know all this stuff. I have to look it up every time, but I, I think it's fascinating to, you know, if you want to talk about a trumpet history buff, uh, John Hagstrom, who I studied with is like the ultimate, especially Bach history buff, because he, he cares about the Chicago symphonies trumpet legacy. Right. right? And so he has, he has the, the best, the best horn. He, he called it, what did he say? He called it the, the Phantom Chicago Symphony Trumpet. And it's because 
you know, there's these famous four C trumpets that were Mount Vernon era that they picked out, right? They went mm -hmm. to the factory and they played a bunch of horns and, you know, the section picked out these four horns and the, the orchestra owns those horns. And John found one that was in between two of the serial numbers. He found a phantom like era and it plays really well too. And so, and of course they have the four horns there that, that the Chicago Symphony owns. And he has a bunch of other ones that are sort of leading up to that. And that other trumpet players actually played in other symphony orchestras at the same time, you know, mm -hmm. and he does presentations on this and he plays the horns and you can hear the difference. I mean, it's really, you know, that's, I, that's what fascinates me. Uh, I, I have to look up all the details every time, but um, I like the idea that we can kind of borrow the, the legacy of, um, you know, we, we can, I can play the instrument that somebody else played and kind of get a sense of what was going on for them and why they played the way they played maybe. I mean, a, a great example is Maynard Ferguson, actually. Maynard Ferguson, one of my greatest trumpet heroes, right? For, I think probably for all of us. Um, and I, I'm really a, a big buff on the early Maynard band. So like 1955 through the 60s, you know, before Chameleon even. Um, it's just amazing. When he was playing actual jazz, right? Yeah, I mean that was a real dance band. They really just right. they and they they would do back to back to back tunes like you hear. A, well, nobody does dance bands anymore, but you know where you didn't stop. You just the next tune got counted off as soon as the last tune ended, and you just went on. And the CDs play like that, and the band used to play like that. Um, but he for a lot of that era, he played a thirty eight B con, consolation, and uh, I I just happened to get my hands on one. I was. I, I knew one guy that was selling it to a different guy and I was going to see one day, day A and the other one day B. So I, he said, well, will you just take this one to him? Cause I'm not going to see him for a week. I said, yeah, can, can I play it? You know? Well, yeah, sure. You can play, you know, play a couple notes on it. Sure. I took it in my house. I put a mouthpiece in and I played it and I went, Oh, not like, Oh, I figured out how Maynard is Maynard, but like all the sounds that I just been, I'd been hearing my whole life of, of, of when he plays, there's a certain, there's a certain sound, a certain glide between the pitches, a certain something to it. And just playing an F major scale on this horn, and I went, oh, I get it. It's like, it's real tight up front, but it's kind of like it blows through on the back end and you can blow as hard as you want and it'll just kind of keep working. But like it, it gets softer between the slots and all this stuff that was like, it would be impossible for me to do that on the horns that I was playing then. And so then I, it's just a light bulb went on. I was like, Oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. So, I mean, th that's that's only one little thing we can do with these historical horns. Like I said, this horn taught me to play trumpet better on my normal horns. You know, uh, I mean, it, so it's it's just a cool it's, it's a cool thing to be interested in. And then I I think um, I think there's there, there should be some of that, right? Uh, I I make all my students play one of the three classical concerti, and I sometimes get a lot of flack for this. Like, well, why? You know, you have grad students playing the, the Haydn. They should be way, well, more advanced than that. I'm like, well, first of all, you know, playing easy pieces isn't always easy. And not everybody thinks the same things are easy. But also, if you've never performed the Neruda or the Hummel or the Haydn, which are our three big ones, uh, you could add some other things around there. But those are the three, you know, the way they are. Um, if you've never played one of those pieces, then you're sort of disconnected from the, the the history that is why we are allowed to play solos on trumpet now, right? Um, we just didn't, the Baroque era, we never played the best, the closest we got was Concerto Grosso, and that was like Brandenburg too, right? Uh, which I, I apparently have a month to prepare again, so I'm, I'm down to the wire on another Brandenburg. 
but that was, it's not a trumpet solo. It's a concerto grosso, right? So everybody's, there's four soloists and the whole group is almost a soloist. Um, and then after the, really the Haydn is the, is the, is the marker because the Naruto is, even though it's before it was written for like basically hand horn. And the reason we stole it is because the same guys played horn and trumpet. It was like high brass players, right? So, um, or at least a lot of them. And so we, we borrowed that literature because it was like, oh, I can play it on the key trumpet, you know, but we get this instrument that can play chromatically in the normal register and it changes our lives, right? Now we are a solo voice, a solo instrument. We can do things that the violins and oboes could do. Um, and, and then that develops the valve and that develops the cornet and, you know, and the cornet literature is real violin literature almost, right? They're, they're equal rock stars in that era. So, I mean, without the, those three pieces, uh, that era, I should say of pieces, um, you know, we wouldn't, we'd still be playing principale parts in orchestra maybe. And well, I, I would, I would be right with you because those are three pieces that I make sure whether or not my students perform them, they learn them in the undergraduate because of exactly what you're talking about. They, well, first of all, I think that helps put them on, on equal footing with everybody else who's going through their degree. Right. I mean, right. there has to be some, some level of, you know, minimum level of experience with these pieces. Uh, but they're also great music, right? Yeah. It's not just oh. learning the Haydn for the sake of learning Haydn or the Hummel or the Neruda. I mean, the second movement of Neruda, I don't think, I think doesn't get played enough on its own. It's gorgeous. So it's like yeah. the second movement of the Hummel, right? Yeah. It, oh, and the, the second move of the Haydn, I think is the, I think it's the singular most perfect composition mm. that, that any instrument has. I mean, it, just from a technical, like when you study in music theory class, mm -hmm. it does everything perfectly and it's beautiful, right? I, I mean, all, all three of those pieces have great second movements. I, I, you could argue about the quality of one versus another of the whole piece or the first or second or third movements, right? You can pick a favorite, but, but you can't say any of them are bad, right? It's just, they're really beautiful. So yeah, I mean, it, and, and yeah, if you don't know those pieces, if you don't, if you're, then you're disconnected from that, that history. And you can, I don't care how well you can play the Honiger Entrada, uh, which is also a great piece. If you don't know that part of your history, then there's something, there's just a disconnect. And I, I know that, you know, a hundred years from now, somebody will be like, Haydn who, you know, we don't care. Uh, so, but Okay, uh, we're going to take a left turn because oh, this, sure. this this is actually getting me into a question I was going to ask you tonight. Okay, great. Um, and, you know, every time somebody starts teaching college, it's like a new generation of, of teachers, right? Uh -huh. And we bring our own experience as students into that teaching experience. So my question is this. From your studies, and of course, yours is even a little more unique because you grew up, I mean, from the <laughs> beginning in the trumpet culture. So maybe this is not a fair question, but, you know, what have you seen uh, in the evolution of trumpet pedagogy that's different from when you studied to where you are? You know, what are the students expecting now? What are they getting now that you think, well, oh, I see. Yeah. I don't know if I'm phrasing that correctly. But, no, I, I think so. You know, in other words, what am I seeing uh, from incoming students? Yeah, what, their needs uh, what, are. And, and what are they expecting? What are they missing? Uh, what, you know, either uh, this, this new generation of teachers is deciding to leave. Maybe they're deciding, hey, we're not going to talk about Haydn Hummel. Yeah, right? um, that's this is a really great question. A fascinating question. So uh, I'll, I'll, and I'll answer it two ways very quickly. One is when I first started teaching, I was 23. 
ish, I think. Yeah. So what, um, two years ago? I mean, you're still young. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm not that young. I've got yeah. at least an extra decade and then some on that okay. age. Right. But, but, um, but yeah, I was, I was fresh out of grad school. In fact, I was trying to do a third year of grad school because I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I got a job and I was like, never mind. Sorry. Um, but I, uh, I remember this sensation of like, I'm going to really do it right. You know, I've had a lot of good teachers, but not everybody does it the best way. And even my teachers didn't do everything right, but I'm going to really fix it. You know, I'm going to do it. And I think that there's obviously a youthful arrogance to that, that I think actually is very welcome to, if you're a new teacher, just let that fly for a little while. Right. That's, that's a good energy, even if you're, even if it's misguided. Um, but then you very quickly find out, oh, there's a reason that people do things the way they do them. And it's very humbling to do that for what is now my 14th year, I think, teaching wow. um, in, at a college level, at least. Uh, and every year I come up with more stuff that I was like, oh, that's why that guy did that. Even though I didn't maybe like it at the time and I thought I was going to fix the world, you know, I, there was maybe a reason. And that's not to be um, sort of... Uh, you know, uh, boomer about it or anything, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to stay with the old ways, but it's important to discover what they were about on your own and to also listen very carefully. I think when people, uh, explain it, but so that's the pedagogy side, what, what I'm seeing. Uh, so, so I, you adapt to that, right. And you, you, what you adapt to is what the students are bringing in, uh, what they're coming in with, what they're coming in without, like you said, and so what I've what I've noticed, I, I live in a, a fairly rural part of uh, eastern North Carolina, and that's where my school is. That's where I live. And, um, and and it tends to mean that there aren't as many people who can play giant steps when they come to college or even even necessarily all their major scales. And that's just a part that's a part of the the um, uh, uh, the amount of wealth or lack thereof down here uh, in some parts and uh, just the the um, immense need we have sometimes for band directors. Uh, there just isn't, there aren't enough band directors to go around for every county, for every school, every, every year. So um, now that's, that's not to say we don't have great programs there. I mean, I, I can't even, it would take me the whole uh, time we have here to list all the band directors. I know that are doing a great job that are just within an hour's drive of me. Right. But that's just how many people there are and how many schools there are. There are even more than that. So, um, so that there are some basics missing sometimes, but that doesn't mean those people aren't going to be good students. They just need someone to show them what they need to know and how to do it. So um, I'm very sort of systematic. And so I have a syllabus that your graded material is these things, like we were sort of talking about, like everybody needs to do certain things so that it's, because it's a class, you have to be fair about a class where you get a grade and a degree, right? You can't just say, well, you know, for Larry, he's already pretty good. So he needs to play like the Peter Maxwell Davies for his jury. But, you know, uh, Joey over here, he doesn't know all his scales. So he's just going to play just the exposition of the Haydn on B-flat trumpet as written. I mean, that's not, you can't do that. So uh, I have a certain amount of material. But what I'm now doing is every single lesson, uh, you're going to do some sort of scale. I mean, once you, once you know your major and minor scales, there's octatonic. Uh, all your pentatonics, your all your minor modes. Nobody practices minor modes except for jazz musicians, and they call them other stuff. But like, there's there's always a scale to learn. So you're always going to do a scale uh, or two that you've prepared. Uh, you're always going to transpose. That's also prepared. Um, you're going to sight read, which can't be prepared except that you work on it. Um, and you're going to do 
Uh, what am I missing? Uh, oh, you're going to do some flexibility uh, every week for me, like in your lesson. And then I've, I've also added excerpts to it because uh, it's really easy to not quite get to excerpts. And then you're like, oh, no, you're taking an audition. Well, do you know Petrushka? And when they're like, no, you're like, oh, I'm a terrible teacher. They make, my kids don't even know Petrushka, you know, but but you got to show people what they don't know. Right. So uh, that's my way of sort of dealing with that. It's like it takes 20 minutes, but it's the best 20 minutes of, of your lesson if you're curious. And so then you, you knock all those things out and then you can get to the uh, Honecker and Trotta if you want to play that. Right. Uh, or, or your lesson material that week. That's just some other etudes that maybe are or aren't transferred And it. It ends up being like, well, if your lesson material can be one of those things, that's what we need to, that's fine. We can overlap, but we need to be addressing them. So those are, those are a lot of the things. I mean, uh, and if I start right away, I've learned that a freshman coming in, they don't know how hard transposition is. So they just do it. And they're pretty good at it. But you know, if I that, wait, and it's, oh, I've never transposed down a minor third. And it's like, well, do it, though. Just <laughs> okay, I want your perspective on, on this. Uh, Sergey, and he said this in many interviews, but he, you know, people ask him, what etudes do you practice? And his response mm -hmm. is, I, I don't practice etudes. I just play repertoire. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and, and and on some level, you know, you're thinking, well, duh, yeah, you know, why are sure. we wasting time with BAME and Brandt and, and Lanchinati and all that stuff? It's like, why yeah. don't we just get to, you know, and I think, okay, for a, a small percentage of us, that might be okay. But what do you see as the benefit of etudes in... Hey, man, I wasn't planning to ask this question. Well, you know, uh, this... I hope this is not a bad question, but... no. You know, uh, I'm I'm happy to talk about it. I I, I talk about it regularly with my students. Uh, etude. Well, first of all, the word etude is French for study, right? Study, right. And so we all know this. Uh, well, we don't all know this. That's why I said it. So for any listening people who don't know that, it means study. And I think I think Sergey has a point there that um, if this isn't music we're going to perform, and we are going to perform other music that we could be busy learning. There's a very logical argument there, I think, right? I mean, it's very straightforward. Um, but why would we still want to do etudes? Um, well, because they're usually a little bit easier and a little simpler in terms of, like, if you play the, the well, this is the Bame book, right? If you play the Bame concerto, well, Burma, if you're being real, you right. know, whatever. Uh, but if, if you play the Bame concerto, that might be way out of your league. I mean, it's a lot of like, I mean, you know, uh, oh no, I don't have any. I'm don't thinking have... the second page, right? Bump, right? The, yeah, the, the I mean, complex figure there. The even just even just doing what is it? Start on low A, uh, the passage right right before that. Augmented, right? That might be hard, you know that. Maybe you've never played an augmented triad before. I and mean, it's like, this is exotic sounding if you've only played band music your whole life. So, um, yeah, and then... I mean, all, all these little things. Well, you know, this book has... That's, that's, a, that's a sort of nasty lick, but it's all in the staff. It yep. gives me time to figure out how to do all these trills. I got to figure out how to do a turn. I got to figure out how to do a trill that's terminated upwards to the next note. 
There's a bunch of stuff in there, plus articulation, uh, sextuplets, all that stuff. So I, I can work on this. I can't necessarily play. I'm just going to get discouraged if I play the whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's true. Uh, if you if you uh, if you have the Boza book, the Boza book is really great. It's actual like almost studies for the pieces he wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, some of some quotes. The first the first thing is. Oh, sorry. Uh, what is it? It's in some key. I can't remember the first note. But right. It's the it's like straight out of the piece, and then. And then there's some other stuff in there that he never wrote into any pieces, at least for us. But uh, but but this is the point: is that these are the, the etudes help you study the types of things you're going to need to know, and they're also different than the literature. Um, they teach you patterns, they teach you techniques, they teach you. Uh, I mean, th that's the thing for sight reading. My dad says that you don't sight read, you sight remember. Um, mm -hmm. And the the point of that is to say, well, if you've never seen it ever before, and you've never played the sound of it before. What's your chance, really? You're not, you're gonna have to figure it out on the spot. But if you played an etude that had it in there, uh, it's gonna go great because you're going. Oh yeah, this. And sometimes it's like, well, you've never played it in F sharp major before, but I've played a lot in F sharp major, and I've played that rhythm, and I've played that kind of art, art, architecture of the line, and so I can recognize that this is a major triad that does this thing that I know in this rhythm that I know in this key that I know, and. So you think, then you and then sometimes you surprise yourself. You go, huh? I didn't know I could do that. But yeah, you know. So that's together. yeah, that's something I I tell my younger students. You know, oh, I hate sight reading. I hate sight reading. And I say, okay, look at this. See any notes you've never seen before? Do you see a Q flat? You know, P yeah, sharp. Right. Oh no, I I know all the notes. And you see any rhythms you've never seen? And there might be a rhythm they've never seen. Yeah. And I say, okay, so you you know. Uh, and we'll talk about the roadmap, the key, the time, all that. And I said, anything that you've never seen? No. I said, so what's the big deal? Right? You know all this stuff. The only difference is exactly what you're saying is it's in a different configuration than you've seen before. Right. Right? So I think sometimes if you try to take that mystery out of it or the idea that you're learning, you're playing something you've never had, never seen before in any way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. that would be kind of scary. Oh, yeah. You know? But to me, I, and I also say, you know what, let's turn, it's like walking into a dark room. You can either walk into a dark room and stumble over everything, or you can turn the lights on and figure out your path. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's, and, a good, that's a good analogy. And I mean, it, it, it comes down to whether you can tell what it sounds like and whether you've physically practiced that sound, right? Yeah. So it's that recognition, too. If you, you can also, there are a lot of very good sight readers that can read a certain speed and no faster. And that's because they can read note by note really fast. That's that's me. I'm trying to hold it in my hand. That's that, <laughs> that's <laughs> I yeah. fall into the category. Well, and, and we all do to some degree because that we yeah. run out of buffer zone for our brain and we start just going no 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 no. But if you zoom out, I I spend a lot of time really far away from music, so I can't really read note by note. Like my eyes can't focus on just this much. Uh, I, I I have a whole bunch of weird quirks like this, but like in an orchestra, my music is in the next row in front of me. And there's no there's no chair in that row in front of me, and then I'm in the back row here, and I have to I have to get up and turn the page, and then oh. sit back down, because in orchestra music that's fine anyway. Nothing goes by that fast, but uh, I, everybody makes fun of me for it. But I can see the conductor, I can see all the, the I can see the whole phrase I'm about to play, and I don't have to move my horn position because I'm always below the stand or around the stand. I'm never playing right into it, and even if I did. The sound's going to go around it still because I'm like four feet away. 
And so there's a lot of advantages there, but, but the biggest one is really like when I'm sight reading, I have to, I want, you want to lean in. That's what we all do. But I have, I zoom back out oh. and I'm like, I'm going to have right. to play the shape of this and not try to get too granular because I'll slow down. And again, it, it's, it, then it's about recognizing shapes and just, I, I assume a sound and I play that sound and if it's wrong, I pay the price. So I'm not sure it's better, but it's a, it's a different sort of approach to it. Um, so a little tongue in cheek. I mean, isn't really one of the best benefits of having your stand where it is in orchestra is that you don't have a violist right in front of you? <laughs> yeah, they'll still put up the shield even in between you and your music. <laughs> I have a story about that I won't tell, but yeah, they'll, in the, in the break, they'll, they'll put a stand, they'll put up a shield no matter what, you know, the, They'll, uh, they'll find a way. So, yeah, but yes, they'll yeah. find a way. It's very Jurassic Park, you know, like Viola finds it's, a way. Viola right? finds a way. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, um, okay. So we, we've avoided the elephant in the room for, oh. for, uh, what, a 45 minutes. So you've mentioned your dad. And of course, if anybody doesn't know who your dad is, you know, they're, it, that's probably okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like to think that, uh, Gabriel DiMartino is his own trumpet player, is his own teacher, uh, oh, you know, but yeah. you do come from uh, a rather well-known, I mean, DiMartino, everybody thinks, oh, Vinny, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Vinny. Well, he knows a lot of people. It's a, that's a, he's a very social creature, you know, and he's a very um, helpful creature too. And so a lot of people have been helped by him. And so of course they think of him. I was actually, this is my, this is my sort of, dark joke for this podcast. I was thinking about it and I was thinking about the name, you know, uh, especially the legend part. And I was like, man, I don't know. I, I don't think I can go on. I'm not, a, I don't have any kind of legend, you know, cause legend, I, I think about like books and stories, legends, you know, legend. And I was like, well, so, okay. What would the Gabriel, what would the legend of Gabriel DiMartino be? And I figured it out. Uh, this is it. It's two guys. And one guy goes, Hey, I heard Vince had a son. And the other guy goes, yeah, it's Gabriel. There it is. That's the legend. Because there has to be a premise and then and then there has to be a payoff. So that's my whole legend. I yep, that's true. <laughs> okay. So uh, you know, I don't know. Have you and I actually d discussed this before uh when you were I think maybe 1 or 2 years old? Do, do you uh -huh. remember this? I don't remember it. No, it's too Well, okay. I I know I brought it up to your dad at one point, but you know, back when he was living in the cabin. Mhm. Mm and I was at UK, and he had one of his uh, his studio Halloween parties. Sure, yeah. Cabin. And I wore a giant teddy bear costume. Uh huh. <laughs> and you sat in my lap the entire evening. I believe it. Yeah. I believe now it. I'm 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 actually a little embarrassed uh, saying that out loud right now. But you know, to <laughs> me, it's like, you know, I mean, how hilarious is that? You know, it's just that I knew you before I knew you were going to become, you know, this, this, uh, incredible musician and, and teacher, but, um, for, you know what, the beautiful thing about that, yes, we're live, but now I'm going to edit that out. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm not. Hey, so, uh, <laughs> Klaus Anselm, uh, Anselm, uh, one of the people here in the chat, uh, -huh. uh, Klaus and I just went through Suzuki trumpet class together. Oh, so cool. I, yeah, I wanted to ask you so much about that, but, but, you, you well, keep going. Well, Klaus and I actually, he's also very talented in, in a number of other ways. And he and I were actually on a Zoom thing yesterday or a day before. And uh, we're talking about HFL, Here From Legends. But we're also talking, you know, I think I'm going to change the meaning. It used to be uh, higher, faster, louder. Uh-huh. Right? Then it was Here From Legends. And sometimes people joke, oh, it's really Here From Larry. 
which works. That's good too. Well, but you should I watch that think, pod. That, I've watched that video podcast. But hear from life. Okay. Right. Yeah. I think also works. There are a number of things that 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 could work for that, and uh, uh, and there's some rather uh, profane things that could pop in there, but we're not going to discuss any of those. But uh, I would like to to say a shout out, give a shout out to Klaus. Yeah. Um, and uh, and also David Wolf. David is a yeah, I see. Uh, a Hi, friend David. of mine and uh, a trumpet player. Both of them are trumpet players. Uh, David, I think, came down to uh, UK, uh, whatever Jason uh, put on a couple of years ago, the last uh -huh. time they had it in person. That's right. Um, yeah, that's that's right. So you probably know him at least mm -hmm. from from that. So uh, both really good people. And thanks for being here, guys. Um, yeah, you know, uh, seeing your dad. Well, he was my first teacher. For those that are, don't already know that, I've probably said that in every interview that I've that I've done because I I hold him that high regard. Sure. Um, but uh, I see the way he interacts at ITGs and other master classes. You know, where and I'm thinking, you know, he's not putting on anything. It's, it's, mm -hmm. that's him. That's Vinny. He's, he's legit. Yeah. And, you know, and from what I've seen with you, that's the same thing. You're the real deal. Right. And I think that's, that's I something that is, well, I think that's something that is, uh, I think more often than not, you know, trumpet players get such a, a bad rap and maybe not anymore. Right. We used to be the de definition of ego, egotistical. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's still some, they're still out there, but but, no. you know, I think more often than not these days, it, it's like you the way you describe Trent Austin. It's like the way we would describe even Vizzuti and how much, you know, they're invested in helping, uh, helping mm -hmm. people. And it's just, and I see that in, in you as well. And I think, you know, that's, uh, that's a testament to your dad and, uh, you know, the atmosphere that you were brought up in. But mm -hmm. um, so it, would you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up and I wouldn't say in the shadow, but did you ever feel like it was you were in the shadow with anything? Yeah. Well, I we when we when we talked before for a different purpose, I believe mm -hmm. uh, we talked about this a little. And that, that you know, I this is my most if, when I go do master classes or interviews or anything, the question I get asked most is, was it hard growing up in your dad's shadow or something along these lines, right? Right. And my answer is has been the same for almost two decades uh, since I thought of it, really, because it was hard for me to answer. I was like, no, I never really felt like that. You know, I, I mean, it, it does because you see him doing what he's doing. Right. And and I wasn't doing any of that for most of my life. And now I'm starting to get into uh, things that are are kind of that same level. But like he's also still doing. I mean, so there is a shadow that is cast and that people want to compare you and so, you know, but the answer I thought of that I have been sticking to and, and really sums it up is that if I played every gig with him for the rest of my life in and like second trumpet to him or second fiddle, as it were, right, uh, that would be one of the greatest careers in trumpet history still. It would still be amazing every concert, right? Because you get to play with one of the greatest trumpet players in the world. And I, I talk about the the Great American Brass Band Festival, where I played with him and Alan uh, Zudi and Doc Severinsen all on stage at the same time. Like, I mean, we must have done six or seven performances in two days. And it was like, I was in heaven. That's like the pinnacle achievement for me. Those are the three greatest legends for my life, you know, that I looked up to much, no matter what age I was, the three of them were always there. And so I felt totally like 
I was just happy that I could kind of fit in with them. You know, I, I couldn't really hang with them. I couldn't, you know, I, 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 I was nervous about the comparison, but I got to be on stage with them and it, I didn't totally fold, you know, and that's like, I think a bunch of, I think anybody, you know, who plays trumpet would kill for that opportunity. And I got it. So I don't need to feel like I'm special. I, that's pretty special. You know, that's pretty, and, and just playing all the gigs I played with my dad, that's also pretty special. I mean, and a lot of people played with him, but they all felt special when they did it too. And so sure. I, I think that's fine for me. And I've played lots of things, you know, alone now. Uh, I've had a, a, a longer career than, uh, than just the things that we've done together, but, but that would be fine with me. I would be happy. And, uh, that I get to do other things is also great. So, so okay. So, from a performance aspect, you know, maybe I, I don't know when you thought, yes, I want to be a performer. Uh, but I'm also curious about when this desire to teach, uh, you know, when when you're like, hey, I might really like to do this too. You know, well, were those simultaneous, or or how did both of those well, come around? Well, they're the same. They're the same goal. Um, so, okay. Well, it's a hundred percent stolen from my dad in that same genuine way, you know, of, uh, that he's, he's very genuine and, you know, he, he didn't have a very technical teacher, uh, in, in Sid Meier. Sid Meier was really great teacher, but he taught music, he taught phrasing, he taught all the, all important stuff, but he didn't talk very much about trumpet. And so my dad kind of taught himself trumpet by asking people questions and doing things. And I'll let him tell that story, but, but he wanted to be a teacher because of that. And also because of some, it, you know, back then the orchestras were a pretty dark place to be sometimes. And even though everybody wanted to be in one, when you found out what that meant, some people turned the other way. And he was one of them. He said, no, nah, I, I did enough time and, you know, saw enough people, you know, mad about nothing. So I, I don't need that. Right. And, and so he joined, I, I, I would argue now that academia is probably worse than orchestras in that same way, but, but maybe not in the music school. Um, but so he joined, he, he decided to be a teacher and a lifelong teacher. And so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help other people get further. Uh, and I, I get sort of on a soapbox about this because there's a lot of people out there that will just tell you, um, you can't, you're not going to make it, you know, sorry, you're starting too late. Or, or they'll bully you into like, well, you know, you, if you really wanted this, then you wouldn't have come un as so unprepared or whatever. And I don't think we live in a world where that works very well anymore. I'm not sure that it ever worked well. I think the generosity comes that, that comes from wanting somebody to wanting to show somebody what they need to do and and help them along. Um, I think that's going to work better. And I, I, I hate now, especially when people will say that this guy's not going to make it, or well, I you know maybe he graduated from such and such, but I don't I haven't heard him play. And it's like no, maybe he's just not there yet. You know, like give him time, give people, you know. Uh, so, but anyway, I, so the performance part of it is um, me being a better prepared to teach people to do whatever it is they want to do. And um, and it's very fulfilling. I mean, I love performing. Uh, and it's not really even secondary a lot of the time. It almost has to be primary so that you make sure you do enough of the different types of it. Uh, but the purpose of it is both in the moment of the performance and because that informs how you practice and that informs what you might be able to help somebody learn. And so that's the, that's the real story of it. I appreciate something you said there. And, and this is going to go back to Suzuki and his, his belief and, and my belief too, that 
uh, of course, he was talking about uh, early childhood education, but that every mm -hmm. child can. Yeah. That's, that's an actual part of Suzuki. And that every child progresses at their own pace. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, okay, that is really how I want to now approach teaching at the college level, because I still think every student that comes in, you know, you can't really call them a child when they're 18, but yes, they're still a child, right? Oh, depends. <laughs> but, yeah, it depends. But, you know, okay, so every student can. Unfortunately, we can't, uh, we don't have the opportunity to let them develop at their own pace that it might really take. You know, a four-year right. undergrad, you've got to try to fit everything nicely into that. And I think that's, that's unfortunate because there, you know, you've had experience with students. If they had had another two or three years, mm -hmm. they would have they would have graduated and been, or, or or longer or shorter, right? But the point is, giving people the time they need to yeah. really well, get where they need to be. And this is this is going to be controversial to an extreme degree, I think, uh, in some circles. But I I think that's because we don't do it right. I think. We, you know, we have these these strictures on us to, you know, got to get them out in four years. Well, why is that? Well, it's because the parents don't want to pay for five or six years. They want to guarantee that they're going to have a fixed cost in this many years. We also up the tuition for a lot of places after that fourth year. If you don't do it in four, then the, the price goes way up per credit or whatever. And uh, we punish people for trying to take their time. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing. In fact, we, well, the other part is graduation rates. Right? We, we, we boast at every university. I'm not saying this about mine specifically because they're all the same now, uh, that we have a 90-something percent uh, graduation rate in four years. And that, again, for the same reason. Okay, well, that's great, but is that really something to be proud of? I mean, that's just saying it's very easy to graduate from here. Most people do. Oh, if you phrase it like that, man, you're going to make a lot of people mad. That's right. And I would say... It would be, I, I would, uh, I mean, I, I didn't want to, the, the school that I went to was in Chicago and I grew up in the country in Kentucky. I hated the city. I didn't want to go there, but I chose the teacher that was going to help me the most for that time. And I didn't care about the rest. I wanted the education. So if that was really true about our educational institutions, then they would post more like a 60% graduation in four years rate. And they would, they would absolutely shout it to the hilltops, right? They'd say it's extremely hard to get out of here in four years, but most people then do it in five or six. And so here are our graduation rates if for for people in this category, you know. So your, here's your chances of graduating successfully over time, and here's how hard it is to do in four years. The students will absolutely rise to that challenge. They'll absolutely like na just gnashing and biting their way to get to that four-year degree. They'll try harder. And they'll put that on their resume. And then when you're looking at it for grad school or for your job application or whatever, you'll go, you graduated at, uh, you know, B-flat university in four years. I've only heard, I've only met two people who've ever done that. And that would be impressive. And, you, you know, there's that much to learn at least. I mean, I always feel like I need two, three, four more years with each student to actually teach them all the stuff that I would like for them to know. But, um, you know, wouldn't it be better, though, if if they didn't have to wait until their freshman year of college to really start this kind of education? Don't you think it would be better if <laughs> if there and, and I know a lot of people are going to be mad at me saying this, if there were real music education happening instead of teaching marching band and, you know, and look, I was in drum corps I, and I like marching band. But, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, where's the real music education happening? 
you yeah, know, where's I, where's that individual attention and and nurturing and development that's going to really take somebody deeper yeah. into music and to love you know learning to really become proficient on their instrument and love the repertoire and love the process. Well, and you and, see it you see it in the best schools, right? They the best schools have all of that and a marching band and uh, whatever, right? Whatever the kids sort of clamor for, but they start from there. What you just described. And those are the best programs. And those students are really prepared for college. And I've had some of them over the years. Uh, and, and, you know, it's nobody, I, I mean, I, at least I don't think either of us are blaming the band directors because a lot of times it's underfunded programs and it's, it's what's always been done and you can't do differently because the district won't let you. And what, that's where the competition, I mean, there's so much, it's, yep. it's this, in, in this, uh, you know, Ramjack Corporation kind of industrial complex that has, it's just what we're used to and it's all the little things. And this is true of academia, this is true of public school systems. Um, but yeah, you're right. It would be it would be really great if if uh, some if, if someone were helping people learn this, the, the these important things earlier, because it's not, it's, it's not going to force the other things that they do out of the uh, picture right if you want to have a, a marching band or a, a polka band or a jazz band it doesn't matter but if you want to have those things um they're gonna they're only going to be better for exactly. having this as a core so and and then this is i mean not to you know toot my own horn or whatever but uh, this is a big part of what i've been trying to do online in the last basically year of just like putting trumpet education stuff out there uh like we talked about like that that trend has been doing for years now i mean that it's like well look this is how i do lip slurs i here's a one minute video on TikTok that shows you how to do a lip slur right um here's me talking about i mean my my i i i live stream every friday at three uh eastern time and it's usually just me practicing and one one week i got like 20 minutes I, I i just go until i stop and it's usually a couple hours and i did 20 minutes on trying to work out the like pitch class system in whatever contemporary piece i was playing and i just was i mean i, I just got into it i didn't think about i was on stream mm -hmm. and i shouldn't and i kept like kind of thinking every once in a while a little light would turn on the back of my head like nobody wants to hear this gabriel this isn't <laughs> interesting to anybody but you but i was like no this is real and you know, to one kid out there, maybe someday who sees that Twitch stream, you know, uh, five years from now or whatever it is, they might be like, did he say vector analysis? I'm going to look that up on Google. Hold on. Let me see about vector analysis. Oh, this is really fascinating. Well, I like math and I like music. Now I've found a, ma a merger. You know, like I would love for that to happen. And uh, I don't know if it ever will, but I know that it can't if nobody is excited about anything and putting it out there, you know? So that that's that's part of the and i don't i don't always do a, the best job at it uh on my streams or on my TikTok videos or on my warm-ups on youtube or whatever mm -hmm. um i do the best i can and i try to make it accessible and my goal is to help those students that haven't come to college yet because once they're in college I, I know hundreds and hundreds of great trumpet teachers at the college level and I know uh, dozens and dozens, and I know there are even more, but I, I know dozens of uh, high school trumpet teachers that are usually in more affluent areas. Uh, but there's there's nobody in, you know, 
uh, I, I don't want to name a place, but you know, uh, I'll, mm -hmm. there's, and except for Vince DiMartino, there's nobody else teaching trumpet in Boyle County, uh, Kentucky, who you'd really definitely want to study with, right? Right. My knowledge, I mean, maybe there is now, I don't know, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but, and that's most places. It's not, it's the norm. It's not the uh, exception. Right. And so, so to have something that's, and, and I know that internet access is also a commodity we take it, we take for, for granted. And I mean, there's other things that are, but more people have internet than have access to good trumpet teachers. And those trumpet teachers are still going to want some money because that's how they make their living. So this is a free resource that you can get if you have the internet at some point during the day, you can, you know, download things and whatever. So, my dad, is, my dad is calling me right now, which yeah. means, which means he should be watching the stream. That's but, right. Or maybe um, he's calling to tell you you should talk about uh, something. Uh, something, something else, right? Else. right. But, <laughs> so that's well, that, that's that, so that's the thing is that you're right. These people, you know, need to start earlier if they're going to finish in four or five but, years. But see, this is where I see the real value, uh, where I feel like now I can make a difference, right, with Suzuki Trumpet and yeah. being able to start these these kids because I see the advantage with string players starting oh. that young. And yeah. it's like, oh, my gosh, can you imagine? Uh, and, and let's say it would be 12 or so years getting some Suzuki st students apply to your school who yeah. you're like, they're playing at master's level you know, right. and they're applying for undergrad. And I think, you know, Though that is great in itself, but also just that they're they've they've been exposed to more. They're they're more mature in so many ways. I, mm -hmm. So I'm I, I'm excited about the opportunity to do that. Whether I'm going to be effective in that is yet to be seen. Well, but and, that's my hope. <laughs> well, and very much up to you, right? That that you know, armed with new tools that really, honestly, I, I mean, how long ago is it that the first person got certified Suzuki trumpet was it was a year or less, right? Uh, no, 2016 is when, okay. when the first. Yeah. That feels like a year ago. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just not that. So armed with new tools, you know, nobody knows how to perfectly wield them effectively. But, you know, it's down to us to figure that out. And then, mm -hmm. you know, whatever those tools may be. And, and even some limited success at first turns into this, you know, just it just blossoms out. It's so amazing. And I mean, yeah, you're right. Like. I would love to have a brass player. I don't even doesn't even need to be trumpet. I would love to have a brass player who stood a chance in a concerto competition anywhere, you know. And we, I mean, of course, sometimes they do, uh, but they're diamonds in the rough. I mean, they're just impossible right. to find because the pianist isn't going to miss a note, and the violinist, if they miss a note, it went by so fast because they played eighty-five thousand notes in their concerto. Right. And then somebody comes in and plays a really, really good Bain concerto, but they missed one high A, and well, that didn't sound very good for a second, and they can't win. You know, I mean, it's it's just not a fair, right? It's not a fair shake. But yeah, maybe they could if they started if they were playing. I mean, I, I'm making some assumptions about Suzuki, but if they're really playing from the same place of like the sound that they want to hear and the the you know, the, the, the architecture of the line is, is something that is inherent in the way that they play instead of just kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, piece by piece, note by note, you know. Right. And uh, it's something that I've struggled with to teach my whole life and that there's a, I mean, that's why I'm so, that's why I said I have a thousand questions about it because I'm like, well, this is, it feels like the missing link to me, right? Like it feels like 
I, I'm begging people to play by ear more, but they're reading note by note more. And like, from what I understand of the Suzuki method, that's that's drawn that's built out of the process, and then and then you come back in from a totally different angle, and still with all with with everything that you had before, and then more. So. Um, well, there is a there is a lot of rote teaching at the beginning, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course, the assumption is uh, well, the stereotype had been that you know they don't learn to read. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. That might be the case with some studios, but really, the Suzuki method incorporates very early on note reading. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just you are really taught to use your ears from the very beginning. Right. Modeling modeling is is the key. Yeah. Well, to, and then it's it's this. sound reading, right? Because then you're not reading a note. That you say that's a G flat and G flat is second valve. There might be, like you said, some rote, but it's like here's here's what you're trying to sound like, and here's yeah. how you get it. You know, yeah. it's it's a complete reversal of the of the mental process of like, you know, and I mean, it, I, I could make a whole argument about how culturally culturally this is something that we deal with a lot in the United States, where like I did this and I did this and I expect this, but it didn't happen. So where is it? And it's like, well, you can't just put down second valve and get G flat to come out. You have to play the right note. But, right. but I did. I put the valve. You know, it's like, no, no. We there's more to it. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's a, there's something else going on here. So, uh, do you remember? I, uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah. Was it da David Baldwin? I think was uh -huh. one of the first to record like all the characters. All the Charlies. Uh, yeah, he did all the Charlies, right. and he did all the. Uh, Beach Etudes. I think that's those were his first two projects. I don't know if okay. he did the the well, characteristics, but yeah. Well, uh, so well somebody did. Or I know Paul Mays has recorded. There's a uh -huh. great recording of him doing characteristic uh, Arbor Number yeah. One. Um, but when those things came out, right, all of a sudden, I knew how to play Charlier. Yeah, because because I wasn't having to figure it out, you know, like reading hieroglyphics. It's like, oh, that's what that's supposed to sound like. And then how, you know, exponentially learning that that piece of music was well, it went up exponentially <laughs> to be yeah. redundant. You know, it was like, well, once I heard it, yeah, okay, I can copy that. Well, you know, not right away, <laughs> but, no, but I can get I can, get a lot closer. And you can work towards something then, because it's not just, you know, I mean, if you're doing a recital, there's there's a some people just, they'll play their piece down. And they'll go, ah, I missed a note here, missed a note here. They'll play their piece down again. They go, well, now I missed this note and this note over here, but I got the two that I missed before. And they'll play it again. And they now they've missed three notes, but they're in three different places than the other four. And, you know, that's very frustrating when you're trying to do a recital or just a performance of any kind. You know, you're like, I can get, I've played everything perfectly. Why can't I do it all at once? And, well, yeah, it's really hard, but it's, there's no, there's no goal there. Then it's just, can I get through it again? You know, like it, there's not. It's it's not. It's one of those things in like in uh, uh, productivity books and things. They they call it a project. You can't do a project. You can do a task. You know, and so this is like I want to make this piece. I want to play this whole piece better. You can't do that. You know, but you can work on a little section and get it better in your ear and better, more on autopilot, so you don't have to think about it so hard when you get there. But that generally is not the the case with a lot of at least younger students, especially they're constantly running the meter for their mental stamina and they're calculating every single little thing, every line, every note, every rhythm. And they're they're reading it like it's the first time instead of the what I, I, I my hate my students hate this, I think. But I'm like, 
just, you know, just singing. We all preach singing now. That's pretty big in the pedagogy world, right? But I'm like, sing it, but but like joyfully, right? Like it's fun to sing, right? Right? Like it's not it's not like a dirt. It's not like that that that. You don't sing like that when you're singing along with the radio. So can you play trumpet like you sing with the radio? Can we do that? Can we make that leap? And like, you know, for that five minutes, yeah, sure. But somehow that's really a hard nugget to hold on to because we go right back into the weeds, right? And I uh, I do. I mean, I, I absolutely do. I, I, like I said, I was practicing Brandenburg uh, this last four days on stream. And I had to admit to whoever was watching, I was like, you know, I know how this goes. I've definitely heard it a billion times. I've played it. I've practiced it. But I have to admit that right now I'm still reading the notes a little bit. Mm. I just am not playing it totally by ear. I'm not really I'm I'm looking at it and I'm I know the lines, but I'm assuming a little too much, and then I realize I've made a mistake because this happens over here, but with a different this. And you know, because they're just scales, I mean, but mm -hmm. uh and I had to I, I was like, I'm a I'm embarrassed to admit that. I guess I don't really know how Brandenburg goes. And so then what did I do? I went and listened to like the, one of the nice Baroque orchestra recordings, uh, like five times in a row. And then I sang it for like another 20 minutes, just like doing my laundry. But, and then I came back down and I played it and it was like, it was the easiest thing I've ever, played. <laughs> you know, I was like, I couldn't have written a better, like uh, ironic script of like, would you teach all these things, Gabriel? Do you did you decide that you didn't need to do them, or what was what were you thinking exactly? You know. Yeah. Well, you know, we're human, right? I mean, yes, we we sure. have to practice what we preach, but sometimes uh, we have to be reminded what it is we need to preach. Yeah. Uh, Tina Helseth is one of my favorite musicians. Yeah. And I only recently discovered that she also sings. Mm -hmm. And when you hear her sing. You, you know, my first reaction was, well, of course, that's why she plays the trumpet the way she does, uh -huh. you know, now it, it's a very smoky, uh, sultry kind of vocal mm -hmm. tone, but the musicianship in it is like, oh, well, that's again, why she plays the way she does. And I think what a great example of, you should be able to sing it. If you want to play the trumpet lyrically, like we're always told, sing through your trumpet, right? Yeah. You, you, like you're saying, don't go. Da, 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 because that's how it's going to come out on the trumpet, right? Yeah, or at least some closer to that than what you yeah, want. But you don't have to go, da, da, da. It would be great if you did. Yeah. But, you know, but if you can show that you have an understanding in a, of what that real tone production, real tone quality is supposed to be like, then you have a much better chance yeah. making it happen on the trumpet. Yeah, I mean, Hunter Eberly changed my life one summer. He's a, a Detroit Symphony principal. Mm -hmm. um, and he came to Interlochen one summer and gave a master class, a couple master classes. But he, you know, he made everybody sing. And he said, "No, no, you got to really sing," you know. And so he he would sing, and he'd go, "Oh, oh!" I mean, this really beautiful operatic voice. And he goes, "I'm sorry, my voice is so bad. I broke my vocal cords one year trying singing too hard." And I was like, "What?" And he goes, "Yeah, well, what I realized is that the better you sing, the better your tone production is." like literally one for one and you can actually sing with the exact proper you know vocal folds and tongue position and all that stuff that will yes. get you the actual tone so you don't even have to make an adjustment you just literally instead of making your vocal cords 
vibrate, you make your lips vibrate and everything else is the same. So he was doing this with students and I was going, oh, wait a minute. Uh, is that really true? Is that, can that be right? I never thought about this before. And I mean, I have like 10 pages of notes from like an hour long masterclass, but it was, and then I went and talked to him about it. And he was like, oh yeah, I mean, I really did break my, I had to go get him fixed because, and he's like, I, I'm not really allowed to sing as much as I used to because wow. they'll break again. Um, I don't know if he cares about me airing that dirty laundry or whatever. Uh, but I mean, he, he said in a masterclass as like sort of, you should be singing so much that you're in danger of, you know, like that's how important it is. And uh, I just never, I never thought about the quality of the voice before. Uh, and, and it changed my life. Like I said, I mean, it, it, and you're right. It, it does. You know, I, Chet Baker is one of my favorite trumpet players of all time too. And I, I just, it's his soloing is so lyrical and so meaningful. The lines are not just sort of technical prowess, even though he has that sometimes, but it's, it's not pyrotechnics. It's, it's a song. And he's, he's writing you a new melody. That's at least as good as the original that he probably just sang. And Chet Baker Sings is the only album I can never get enough of, I think, because you hear it in the quality of his voice and the quality of his sound, and these are the same sound in his head, you know? Uh, well, but you talk about uh, transferring things from vocal to trumpet. I also think that uh, the way we... Uh, the way we teach articulation, right? If I can go dee da 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 dee da 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 dee da, -da, 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 -da mm -hmm. that's exactly the articulation I should use, right? But then the students go, they'll go, they'll sing it, da da dee da 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 dee da, and then put it on the trumpet. They go, ta da da da. No, no, no. I mean, it is it is literally the same. Only don't don't engage your vocal cords, right? It. Do you agree with that? I do. Well, I mean, I heard John Hagstrom do this at a, a Rich Dozel masterclass before he, uh, when he was still at Grand Valley, and um, it was the, it was the best thing. I can't remember who asked the question, but he he sang something. Just didn't didn't mention it. Just said, you know, singing is important. Demonstrating working with a student, and he sang, you know, and he had this very weird like a little bit brushy D kind of tonguing ta, 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 ta. and uh oh man i wish i could remember who it was but anyway somebody somebody in the audience uh, another trumpet professional trumpet player raised his hand and goes you sang this articulation is that that's how you play it isn't it and he goes oh yeah thanks oh yeah i was steve burns because he has ears for that you know he can just he's like something special is happening here he, he has like a spidey sense for that so he goes I, is that is that the, that's the articulation used on the trumpet? And he goes, "Oh yeah, if your you know if your air is really good, um, you don't need to bang out the articulation. A, a kind of a D or a brushy kind of da tongue is plenty to make a really crisp and clean attack. And anything more than that is gonna is gonna cause turbulence that you you don't really need or or want. So you, it'll it'll disturb your airflow instead of let it out." And I, I'm like, I was in like the front row, just again, notes, 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 notes. And I mean, it, it's those moments where like, I didn't connect. That was five years before, at least, the Hunter Everly masterclass. But it, mm -hmm. it's, and this is what I'm talking about with, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I've learned in the last 10 years of practicing is, and done, is stuff that I absolutely 100% would have laughed at you if you told me I was going to be doing that. And, but it has a value that, is real to me now um 
you know, like before this, before we got on here, I, I didn't know if I was going to be playing or anything. So I, I warmed up a little bit and I got out my tuba mouthpiece and I played some poo attacks on it. And I got out my trombone mouthpiece and I went from tuba to trombone to bass trumpet to other bass trumpet to what I call zero and a half C to uh, cut out. And then to finally like a up sound with the extra heavy filter on my normal mouthpiece. And I can do the same pitch on all of these and I can do it real fast. And like, that's a crazy thing that I do that nobody, I, I don't know, I, I would, like I said, I would have laughed at, at me if I told myself that 10 years ago, but it's like the, one of the most critical aspects of my, my playing now. So I, I think the, these things that, that are, you know, these moments where something special is happening, sometimes they don't click for every student in the room. And even, even if the student, the only student in the room, right? But it's important to keep that kind of nugget in the back of your mind or in your notebook. If you, I mean, I keep a very good trumpet journal still to this day. Um, and I look at it, I look back at it. I don't just look at like what I'm writing now. I look at yesterday and the day before and the month before and the week before. And I, I look at stuff and I go, huh, that worked a week ago. How come I'm not doing that anymore? The same thing is like my practice session where I'm like, oh, did you think you could get away with not knowing, like not being able to sing it or whatever? Uh, yeah, it's because we're human, right? And it's okay to make mistakes. It's just, it's very frustrating to repeat them over and over again <laughs> for years and years and maybe decades. And uh, and I've definitely done that. So I, I try to prevent that if I can. And, and I try to listen more than I used to to uh, to things that I don't think will work. Or, or that I'm just not, I don't understand. Um, I write them down, I ask questions. And um, and it's not like, I could throw in a line of like, well, we're all lifelong learners, right? I mean, yes, of course we are. But it's not because, it's not because we're not authorities on what we do, right? We know a lot of stuff and you teach a lot of years, you learn a lot of stuff, you help a lot of people learn that stuff. It's because, I don't know, I mean, at least for me, I'm just, I'm just still so bad at the trumpet, you know? Like I, I, there's just still so much stuff that I really just can't do the way I want to do. Yeah, and but um, but you know what? That's going to be the way you're going to say the same thing the day before you die. No, that's what I'm saying. Out, exactly right? that. Yeah, is, I know. I know that I've got a lot going for me, but I'm still so frustrated that of course I need to learn more stuff. I, I mean, I need to learn the secret to tongue position. You know, while Hagstrom Hagstrom can rotary breathe and double tongue at the same time while playing up and down a scale. That's not a thing that's possible for me. So there's something I'm missing if I want that. Now, I don't have, to, not everybody has to want that one, but there's a whole bunch, of, just getting like, I, know, I mean, basic stuff. Like, can I get this note to speak for me right now and stay in tune? That's like simple, but it doesn't yeah. happen for me every day. So that's how what I mean. More, how, okay. So here's a little of a side uh, of an aside. How many more people can uh, circular breathe now? than could have before. Well, you know, Rafael Mendez used to be the only one that I knew uh -huh. that could do it, right? And yeah. now it, it's it's not a parlor trick anymore. Yeah, I think uh, I think Winton, uh, the Winton recording of uh, Flight of the Bumblebee, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, motor, and Perpetual and, Motion. And Perpetual right? Motion, sure. Uh, I think that Perpetual Motion especially changed everybody's life, right? Yeah, but Everybody, he slurred it. Mendez tongued it. it. Well, and so did uh, Sergei Nikarikov, right? He mm -hmm. he does it on, I think he, I, I wish he was here to ask. 
I think he does it as written on E flat trumpet double or you know uh, multiple tongue or whatever tongued, but tongued and never stops the whole time. Mm -hmm. But like this is this is one of those things people always ask uh, about trumpet history. Uh, are we better now than we used to be, or were we better back then as a community? Right? Because mm -hmm. we used to have the Bernie Adelsteins and the Armando Gatalas, right? Do we have those anymore? I mean, and as a, as students, are we better or worse? You know, and you can make an argument for one way or another, but it's they real the old the the arguments for the past hardly stand on any legs after you get into any kind of real technique, because yes, you can point to Rafael Mendez and say, or or Herbert L. Clark and say well, this guy could do it. Okay, yeah, but him and like Jules Levy and uh, Llewellyn. I mean, these are these are all uh, obscure cornet soloists of the eight, late 1800s. But okay, yeah, like I can count them on one hand, the guys who could do the stuff that they do. And maybe a lot of people were practicing cornet, you know, it was more popular music back then or whatever, but we can do stuff now that you just couldn't even, I mean, how many, how many Brandenburg concerto uh, performances are there gonna be this year in the United States? Because I bet it's more than one. And I bet the one is not just the one that's in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, you know, like there's going to be a 10 or a hundred. Yeah. And I think honestly, the key to that is because we can share so much, so more, so much more quickly now. Right. Yeah. I mean, you used to have to book, you know, a, a lesson with a teacher and, and make your way to them and, and mm -hmm. you would get zero, uh, 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 Xerox or mimeographed copies of uh, right. stuff, right? Yeah. It smelled great. That blue ink, purple ink smelled great. But, you know, uh, you didn't have YouTube. They, you might have to wait however long to get the album you had to order, you know. Uh, so we have the ability to do so much, so much more quickly now. Not everybody takes advantage of it, though, right? Right. I mean, well, even, I even, even ourselves. But I think that's why I would argue that, yeah, we're better off. We're so much better off. And, and not better off, but so much better in terms of, of quality. Yeah, I think, I think we have more opportunity. I, I think that the, the argument for the old days being the best uh, stems from how, how much people cared about what they were doing, like practicing trumpet at school or, you know, I, I mean, there were, then there were definitely, it was more popular to do, right? But you're right, the resources, I mean, my dad's origin story, if we're talking legends, right? He had some, he wanted, he loved playing the trumpet in school. Like that part's still going on, right? People still love trumpet. People still play in school. Uh, and his his teacher, uh, Mr. Diulio uh, at West Babylon High School in Long Island um, would just use the Arbens book and turn pages and say, what, you know, play this one. And he couldn't. So he'd say, well, it doesn't sound good. See you later. And, you know, my dad was motivated. So he wanted to practice. But the way that he really got inspired, he had like, three albums or something you know and he talks about again I'll, he he knows the all of the i always get it mixed up with other stories he's told and things that i remember but but you know he had a he had a rafael mendez recording and so he would just try to mimic it right and then he had a maynard ferguson recording and so he just try to mimic it you know and not knowing the limitations again this is probably something that comes up in uh, and, and Suzuki as well, but not knowing the limitations, like what's hard, right? Uh, 
you just try to do it. And then, you, well, you, of course you fail because you don't know what you're doing, but that's part of the expectation that you have for your process. And so he, he, he the, the, way, the reason he tells these, the story about the three records he has or five or whatever it was, is, is actually to tell the story about how he learned that music was written down. Because he didn't know that you could buy Hager Cotty, which is the, the uh, Rafael Mendez solo that he had. Um, he didn't know you could buy that. So he went in the music store and he was like, what, you could just you could just buy the music to this? I've been transcribing this for months. You know, it's like mad about it, you know? And then, but but that's the thing is that that's, he, he is, his story is exceptional because he was successful. Uh, and he was successful because he is, uh, he's tenacious in that way, right? He didn't want to fail and he loved what he was doing. Um, I would say that everybody has that opportunity to be tenacious and love what you're doing and to keep doing it. Uh, and I, I think, uh, you know, that was a different era and maybe we, we like to be told what to do more than figure it out nowadays, uh, a little more as a culture, but I still think that there's joy in figuring it out and that when people key into that, then they have that same chance of really being just as successful and, uh, but they have to have those resources. They have to have something that inspires them that they can try to do that's maybe just always out of reach, and then to grow that res those those resources. And um, you know, I, I I say that only because I know that that's not the reality for everybody. But like you said, also, um, if I'm being careful about being ableist about you know making sure that I don't say that everyone has these resources, right? Then if you do have these resources and you're sitting there listening to this podcast, which I guess you'd have to then if you're hearing this, uh, then you should do something with those, right? You do have sort of an obligation to take the maximum advantage of your resources and to be one of those inspired people. Because guess what? The guy that sits next to you in your band program right now in, you know, um, you know, Pumpkinville Middle School uh, doesn't have those resources and you're his inspiration. And he's just going to want to keep up with you. And he's going to ask you, ask you questions. And then guess what? You can give him your best Maynard Ferguson recording. You know, I mean, that's, this is what I'm saying is that like, it's it, the, the, the way around the problems that we have where, you know, uh, maybe this person can't have what this person does have, or, you know, the, the, the different economic classes and, and, and racism and, and all kinds of ableism and, and just disparity in the world is to get excited about the things that we can and share them with other people as and as many people as possible and i mean i'm, I'm not it's not going to change the world the like all solve all of our problems overnight but if somebody who has then shares with somebody who doesn't and then the, they both can succeed now that's a, that's a solution to you know it, in other words understanding your privilege and uh using your platform to empower somebody who doesn't have that. That's important. And we talk about it now a little bit with racism and classism and sexism and, um, you know, all kinds of different rights movements. We don't talk about it with music and I'm not here to like try to make that equal. I'm here to say like, well, we already know how to do that though. We, we do share music already. We don't do it enough. This is an important thing that we can all get really excited about and really into, and you know, and that's one of the reasons that uh, for me, like, I don't, I don't want to put any more barriers, right? The all the projects I have online are free because they, 
it's already hard enough for some people to get online. And, you know, I don't charge for lessons because, I mean, outside the school, because like the school pays me already. So I don't need, I don't need your $30 or whatever. <laughs> Just Good. Use, I'm going to book a lesson. I'm coming your yeah. way. Well, you know, the thing is use it for gas money to get to where some, yeah. and, the, and I can't, I can't teach that person every week, right? I don't have the time. So it's yeah. not, but let's set them up with somebody who can, I mean, this is what I'm saying the resources are there, but they're not available to everybody. So let's work on that. Let's work on making them really uh, democratic, really almost socialist. If you, I mean, uh, these are naughty words nowadays, but that everybody has equal access to the ability to work hard, to get good at what they want to do. Yeah. That's a good thing. I don't, I, everything else you can argue with somebody else about it. You know, I'm not yeah. a politician, but, but that's something that I, I care really deeply about. And, yeah. um, and that, that I, I did also learn from my dad. I don't think, I don't think I ever saw my dad take a, a dollar for a lesson uh, outside of school where they pay him to teach the lessons, right? So, well, I can attest to that because I, I came to him as a junior in high school. And at the end of the lesson, you know, I had money with me. My dad sure, gave me money. And I said, uh, you know, Mr. Martino, how much do I owe you? He goes, you know, as long as you practice, you don't owe me anything. Yeah. Well, guess, guess what? <laughs> I, I practiced. You That's know? right. Well, and if you, you know, now if you stop practicing, he's going to come I for that him. money now. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> I don't, if it was $5, he's going to come find you, Larry. Yeah, yeah. But I so, mean, that's, that's, yeah. Hey, Gabriel, I, I, I can't believe we've gone, we've gone this long. I know, yeah, we've been just talking. I'm sorry. I, I, I really wished I had pushed record a long time ago, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this has been great. And I tell you what, all of this has been terrific, but the last five or so minutes to me has been like pure gold. Oh. And just the way you're talking about, and, and I'm thinking this is definitely going to be excerpted, you know, going to be the promo uh, for this. But um, I, I hope I said it the I, right I, way. I, I, I well, you did. Know. You did. Uh, and I feel like we could go forever. Uh, and we probably could. But I, I do want to respect your time. But uh, man, yeah, we, we need to do this again further down the line. And yeah, you know, and uh, well, see, I had to Maybe. talk longer because I had to try to make up the difference between me and the rest of the guys this month. You know, so yeah. I, just, I can't do quality, but I can do quantity. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's what, but no, no I mean, I, I would be happy to do this anytime. I, not, yeah. not so much because I have a lot to say, but because it's really easy to, you know, you bring up all the right kinds of things where it's really, you have to think of a, a, a second about what, what you really think about that. You know, it's, it's not a, not to be, not to say it's a hard interview. It's um, it's hard to be a good interviewer, and uh, you do a really good job. Because I I have to tell you, I've done a couple of interviews where I just thought, wow, did I really say all that stuff that I, I don't really want that to go out in the world. And right. Um. And then, but yeah, but I mean, it's it's just easy. This is an easy environment to to just chat about. Well, all thank this you. Stuff, so I I appreciate that very much. And uh, your dad has said the same thing. So I, I don't know if he paid you to say that. Uh, no. Know, but, <laughs> well, that's so, what his, but, that's what his call was about, actually. Oh, uh, right, right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I always enjoy talking to him. Of course, uh, well, I, I think I've told enough people now. You know, I'm writing about him. Right. Um, but I don't know how many we're we're in the teens. The number of hours we've spent together uh, in interview. Oh, I'm and, sure. And now the it's been a it's been a quite a few weeks. Um, but uh, we're going to pick it back up because he still has an awful lot more to share. Uh, kind of like you still have an awful, awful lot more to share. 
you know? So, um, well, look, not, not only am I grateful that you gave me the time to be here tonight, but I'm also grateful that you're doing what you're doing. You know, you're outperforming and teaching and, and staying curious and hungry and all that stuff. I mean, I think to be a colleague or a student of yours uh, would be a pretty cool thing. So I appreciate what you're doing for the trumpet world in that way. That's very nice of you to say. I, and I, I do, I try to do that. And I, I also try to understand that I'm probably not going to do it enough. Uh, uh, nor, nor could any of us, you know, so mm -hmm. that's, that's, um, it's very nice of you to, to, to mention that. And, and just to say it is uh, very yeah. kind. Well, you're welcome. Um, okay. So uh, let me do, I, I hate to wrap up like this, but, oh. I, I, but let me do real quick. Uh, of course we did a great, uh, service to Trent and Austin Custom Brass at the top. Yeah, that's this, right. Because I'm uh, supposed to play Giant Steps according to Klaus over here, right? Yeah, because uh, I made Trent do it. Uh, Linda see. Moore, thank you. Uh, David Wolf says uh, this has been fantastic. Yes, thank you guys for for chiming yeah. in and saying something for that. I appreciate those people that are here. And you know, the cool thing is um, to see after the fact. Uh, once I upload this to to YouTube right, is like the, the number of views goes up exponentially. So oh, yeah. know, it might not seem like there's a whole lot here. A lot of people are going to see this, which I'm really grateful. Cool. Grateful yeah. For. Okay. So giant steps. Oh, I guess. Okay. Um, I don't have to play the head, right? I just can play. I'll play the exercise I always play just to make sure I can still do it. All right. Giant steps, kind of. When it's the right changes, I just played. You know, that was great. That was great, and <laughs> and, that, and now it's here for all of posterity, right? It's recorded. It's there. Well, if it, that's, I'll tell. Uh, this will be my pedagogical moment for the. I didn't teach anybody anything until now, but if you want to make sure that you you can still do giant steps, then you can just play that, which is basically just. One, two, three, five, one, two, three, five. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a, well, I call it Coltrane and out because he does that when he gets in trouble. Oh, funny. So you just, except he does it really artfully and I just do it as an exercise. But <laughs> but then then you can at least hear the changes and you can get your fingers around it. And and then you but can you play start something. somewhere, right? I mean, it, it might start as an exercise, but how long before that becomes natural, right? And, and yeah. then it becomes part of your voice. Well, and then you and and then you 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 get tired of playing the same old dumb pattern, and so you start to hear in the pattern, and you play. And again, we're back to hear, hearing something and then playing it, right? And right. and this is this is very Coltrane because he would say something along the lines of like, "Well, it takes three or four courses to get the practice out of my fingers before I play anything really new." Mm -hmm. uh, I think he also said something about like if you play more than four choruses, then you're, you know, you're uh, to get off the stage, you know. So there's like a special like four to five choruses window or something. But that could be, right. those quotes might be anybody, you know, we attributed. Yeah. But but anyway, yeah. So that's that. Now I've done it because uh, I made, I uh, I made Trent Austin do it. Sorry, uh, but yeah. he 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 actually played a real solo for like three choruses, and I just did an exercise. So I'll, when I'm ready, I'll do the whole thing. But Give me another. Cool. I don't know, it's been that's been twelve years that I've been yeah. working on that. So another be careful, twelve or twenty-four. Be careful that you don't slip into that in the middle of Brandenburg, right? Well, don't 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 throw in a giant steps cadenza. You know what? That uh, that also <laughs> the that in posterity that was the B flat slide, but without the bit in it. So it's probably a quarter tone sharp. Uh, 
So yeah, so take that, Trent. Try to play it up a quarter stone. <laughs> now that's like hyper giant step. That's hyper steps. Right. right. Jeez. Size thirteen. It's a size thirteen wide. Yeah. Right. See, I don't have perfect pitch, so everything's all you know. Just yeah. it's it's all jelly to me. I don't know. Anyway, so. All right. Hey, uh, okay. So Austin Custom Brass, again, generous sponsor for April's interviews. Uh, Trent, thank you. And of course, uh, anybody out there that wants to find out more about Trent and his business, austincustombrass.biz.biz. Check it out. Uh, Trent and his shop will take great care of you. I'll answer all kinds of questions and set you up with terrific uh, answers and equipment and such. So again, thanks. Uh, Gabriel, thanks to you. For being here again tonight uh You're thanks welcome. to the to viewers for being out there i appreciate your continued support of this program uh, i will let you know that may ooh, may is a good lineup too uh Vizzuti, mary right. bowden oh wayne wayne bergeron jeez Bijan watson oh man okay so yeah so don't miss may <laughs> i mean geez, don't miss may. so okay you want to go into june june is uh, uh i always forget rachel raquel samoya uh huh. Uh huh. Um, James Morrison. Sure. Jen Morata. Uh huh. Yeah, she's Sarah. recording. She's recording all the uh, the characters yep. she says right now. Art of phrasing, and they sound great. Um, uh -huh. Chris Coletti and Sarah Stoneback. So I've got you know oh, the next wow. nine nine interviews are to me all it, well. This is all high powered stuff. It's I'm really looking forward to all that. So yeah, uh, but there will be a lot of information coming out about those, of course, on social media. Mm -hmm. Um. Gabriel, hang on just a second. I'm going to sign off here. Uh, oh, sure. So again, uh, studiohfl.com if you want to sign up for the newsletter. And uh, there's also some cool merchandise. And I got to throw this in here real quick for the merchandise. And you're going to tell me, Gabriel, if you like. Uh, I'm going to get a better picture of this. <laughs> uh, hang on. I got I to gotta get, get this. Where is it? Oh, where is it? There we go. The World Trumpet Force. Uh -huh. Right, the WTF. <laughs> I get it. Okay, so you see, you see the lat, you see the Latin at the bottom. Vinte labis magis. Uh huh. Uh huh. Blow I, harder. Oh, okay. All right. See, right. I grew up too late. I, we weren't allowed to take Latin in school. I mean, yeah. we, we just it wasn't an option. Yeah. But my dad got it though. He he can do Latin. So that's uh, anyways, that's uh, that's an example of one of the shirts available on the website. Hey, Morris Northcutt. Uh, just chimed in. Morris oh, yeah, is thanks. a beast of a player, and what a nice guy. Morris, thanks for the comment and uh, and for viewing. Um, I Morris posts stuff. You know, he's like, uh, you know, here's a little practice on this, that, or the other, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what a sound, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. I hate he it. Sounds when, great. You know, that's one of the best and worst things about the internet. I hate it when I get I get on Facebook and I go, oh look, let's see what this guy's playing. And he goes, well, I haven't warmed up today. I just am going to play. <laughs> right. I'm just going to play this uh, characteristic study, and it's like, and I'm like, well, hmm. right. I mean, and, and then I go. You're only using one lip, right? Yeah. Then I go practice, but I don't like it. You know, I'm just telling all you guys out there. I'm so happy for you, but I'm yeah. bums me out for like an hour, and then I practice right. really hard. I'm still not anywhere close, but then I feel a little better. Yeah. But no, it's great. I mean, it's it like I said, it's the greatest and worst because you you feel bad, but you're like, wow, that guy can really. I mean, I can't right. believe that exists, you know. So right. <laughs> so all right, hey, uh, one final sign off, uh, Morris. Yeah, man. 
Yeah. Uh, and Morris, you and I are going to have to chat soon too. So everybody else, thank you again. Gabriel, hang on. I'm going to do a quick sign off here. All right, everybody.